And what an appropriate song for us to sing this morning before we dive into God's Word, where we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John 16, John 16, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 15 this morning. And while you're turning there, I just need to give a little shout out to my son today. It's his birthday. Jacob is 15 today. And uh, I point that out because he's kind of like our time marker uh, for our time here in Texas, because we had him within the, I mean, he, was, uh, he wasn't even around when we moved here. And uh, so within the first year and a half, uh, the Lord blessed us with him, our third child. And so anyway, it's been 15, 16 years since we've, uh, we just chronicle our lives according to Jacob here in Texas. So uh, he's the only true Texan, right, that we have, born on Texas soil. Um, but anyway, happy birthday, bud. Proud of you, man. Now I've thoroughly embarrassed him, so (laughs) he loves it. John 16, chapter chapter 16, verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and how they work in unison to convict us, Lord, to comfort us, and to conform us to the image of Jesus, your Son. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, truly experience the work of the Spirit uh, in this place, in our lives, this morning. As we go through this passage, Lord, that we would sense His illuminating work, granting us understanding, revealing truth to us, Uh, Lord, and helping us make application of it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Holy Spirit may be the most talked about, but most misunderstood member of the Godhead. There are many conflicting ideas and opinions regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the way that the Spirit works in the church and in the world. A lot of what is believed about the Holy Spirit and attributed to the Holy Spirit in the church today is totally mystical and experiential rather than truly biblical. In other words, people are claiming that the Holy Spirit is doing certain things that the Bible never says He did or would do. And in numerous charismatic and Pentecostal churches, all sorts of bizarre manifestations are accredited to the Holy Spirit. 
Some of you may remember back in the 1990s, a movement called the Toronto Blessing started at the airport Vineyard Church in Toronto and spread all over the world. It became a a worldwide phenomenon. It was uh, dubbed the Laughing Revival because people would supposedly get so drunk in the spirit that they would laugh uncontrollably while awkwardly jerking around and, 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 uh, or, or just wildly flailing and, and jumping or shaking and stumbling around, kind of like they were drunk and then falling on the ground and just either you know, shaking or, or just laying there in a catatonic state for, for the duration of the service. By the way, don't do that. That would be distracting for me if I saw somebody laying there uh, on the ground during the service. Um, In fact, the leading pastors and preachers in that movement would get into the pulpit and literally act like they were drunk. I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch this craziness, and, and, and I was watching too much of it yesterday, unfortunately, and, and, and there was a guy up here like this, you know, acting like he was drunk, and he was slurring his words, and he was stumbling around the stage, and he was really making a mockery of the pulpit and, and, and of the Word of God. You say, well, how could they defend their actions with the Word of God? Well... In their minds, it was very simple. Ephesians 5.18 says that we're not to be drunk with wine, but we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which makes a person look and act drunk. They make the equation there between the two. Uh, For further proof, they referenced Acts chapter 2 and explained how when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, everyone in the upper room started speaking in tongues, and they were accused by the crowds of being drunk. And they, they, they claimed that this was the new wine that Jesus promised. And so they would go around and, 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 and figuratively pour this new wine on, on people's heads and, and say, Lord, fill them and, and, and take over and uh, just, just craziness. In some extreme cases, the laughing turned to barking like a dog, uh, roaring like a lion and making other animal noises. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, okay? This is what was happening. Some even began throwing up, which was also considered a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That was kind of, it just, it's like, where does this thing stop? In more recent years, uh, the same kind of strange phenomenon has been exhibited in places like the International House of Prayer uh, in, in Kansas City, known as IHOP. Don't get it confused with Pancake Place, but that's what it's called, IHOP. Uh, and the Lakeland Revival uh, in, in Lakeland, Florida. You may have heard about that. One of the most popular charismatic churches today is called Bethel Church in Redding, California. Some of you may have heard of this. It's becoming more and more well-known as more and more crazy things happen there. Someone in our church recently told me about some of the things that were happening there, that their pastor, his name is Bill Johnson, and again, I'm saying this just so you're aware of, of who we're talking about here, um, he smugly claims that these things are the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there's the typical signs and wonders, the healing and the prophesying, and, and there's the speaking in tongues. But then there's things that they call a fire tunnel, where they actually get all together and they make this, this, the, this uh, aisle uh, or this tunnel with, with people in their church lining both sides and you have to walk through this fire tunnel and as you walk through, people are laying their hands on you, praying for you and you're getting slain in the Spirit and you're getting healed and you're getting baptized and you're getting drunk in the Holy Spirit and as you're going through this thing, it's kind of a rite of, a, rite of passage, particularly for the young people. 
They also claim that they have angels' feathers falling in the service, um, gold dust appearing, and probably their biggest claim is the glory clouds, that these clouds just appear during their services and they kind of hover in in the atmosphere and people are taking pictures of them, they're videotaping, they're Instagramming them all over the place and, and they're saying it's the presence of the Lord visiting them, kind of like the Old Testament. And they insist that there is no way to question that these things are from the Lord. And if you do a little research on the history, Bill Johnson went to the Toronto Blessing and he simply exported that to his church in Bethel. And now he's kind of the new face of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I would just say this, based on the Word of God, don't credit that kind of craziness to the Holy Spirit. That is, that, that, that is anything but holy. Uh, it, it's sad. It's scary. And I think at some point it's satanic. A year or so ago, uh, you may remember that John MacArthur hosted a, a very controversial conference um, at his church in California called Strange Fire. Based on the story of Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, they offered strange fire unto the Lord, and the Lord killed them, right? And uh, his, his point is that there's a lot of strange fire being offered uh, before the Lord today in, in, in the form of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And, uh, and, and he, he and the other speakers addressed this, this really unbiblical movement that's leading many people astray. It was really a, his book, by the way, he came out with a book called Strange Fire. It's kind of an updated version of his original book called Charismatic Chaos, which is a classic name. Uh, but uh, that was a very popular book he wrote years ago and now, again, updated with some more modern examples with Strange Fire. If you're curious... Um, and, and, and want to do some more research and study in what the Bible says about this, this um, movement, the charismatic movement, I would encourage you to either read Charismatic Chaos or, again, the, the newer version, Strange Fire. Very, very helpful resources. Uh, the reason why I'm saying all this is because this morning we are going to look at one of the clearest and most extensive explanations in the entire Bible of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus was explaining to his disciples in the upper room what they should expect the Holy Spirit to do when he came. In other words, how he would manifest himself. And notice, we've already read the text, there was nothing about glory clouds and angels' feathers and spirit tunnels or fire tunnels or uh, all that kind of stuff that's being attributed to the Holy Spirit. He's already told them earlier that evening how he was going to send them another helper to take his place when he returned to heaven to prepare a place for them. Uh, John 14, verse 16, remember, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be with you. He said in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then last week, we saw this in verse 26 of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you you have been with me from the beginning. 
So in each of these previous references to the Holy Spirit, he is referred to as the what? The helper, capital H, helper, paraclete, parakletos in the Greek, one who comes alongside to help or support. And this word we said earlier could be translated comforter, encourager, strengthener, advisor, counselor, and intercessor, which pretty much uh, describes, right, the, the full orb ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the moment we become a Christian, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells us and serves as our invisible helper for the rest of our lives here on earth. And it is this permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be and do all that God wants us to be and do. And so we talked about this back in chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit isn't just some impersonal force some kind of magical power, but he is a person who does everything, not for us, but in us and through us. Let me just list for you some of the things that the Bible says that the Spirit of God does. He convicts us, he regenerates us and saves us, he baptizes us, he indwells us, he seals us, he guarantees our eternal inheritance, he teaches us, he empowers us to witness, he helps us mortify sin, he guides us, he assures us that we're saved, he intercedes for us, he gifts us to serve, he sanctifies us, and he produces fruit in us. If you want to talk about the manifestation of the Spirit in a church, how about Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, oh, don't forget, self-control. And so much of what is being uh, done in these churches is out of control. I've attended a few charismatic services in my day, and they were completely out of control. It was chaos, and it was just very unnerving and, and, uh, and, and, and I just thought very dishonoring to the Lord, who is a God of order. I thought, if these people are filled with the Spirit, then why are they acting so out of control? Because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Well, here in John 16, Jesus focused in on two specific ministries of the Holy Spirit, His reproving work in the world and His revealing work in the church. Basically, what Jesus is saying here to the disciples is that he sent the Holy Spirit or would send the Holy Spirit to continue the work that he began in and through the disciples. In other words, I've got some work for you to do. I'm passing on a mission, uh, passing the baton on to you, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to help you with this mission of testifying to the world about me. As God's Son... Jesus was sent by the Father to do His work, and now Jesus was sending the Spirit to do His work. Notice what He says in verse 5, But now I'm going to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. If you remember back in chapter 13, when Jesus mentioned the first time that he was leaving them and they couldn't go with them, Peter asked him where he was going, chapter 13, verse 36. And then in chapter 14, Thomas asked him, well, how do we know how to get where you're going? So they did ask, but 
Jesus knew these initial questions from these two disciples were not sincerely motivated out of love and concern for him and his future, but they were more motivated out of sorrow and concern for their future. And by now, um, the disciples were so confused and discouraged, to, they, they probably didn't want to pursue this any further, ask him any more questions. And so Jesus just wanted to encourage them here by reminding them that while his departure was painful and difficult, I get that, guys, I get that, but you need to know it's necessary that I go because unless I leave, then the Holy Spirit can't come to dwell in you and empower you to be the witnesses that I've appointed you to be. And so while they would have preferred him to stay with them, Jesus wanted them to know that it was better for them if he left. In other words, they'd be better off with the Spirit inside them than with Jesus beside them. You think, well, you know what, it'd be better if I wish I'd lived back in Jesus' day where I could have walked and talked with Jesus. Well, guess what? You're better off living right now in this day and age with the Spirit of God inside you than if you actually walk with Jesus beside you. That's what he's saying. It's to your advantage that I go back to heaven, because then you'll have the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, Jesus' ministry here on earth was limited by his physical presence to one location at a time. Um, It was wherever he was traveling. It was where his ministry was, right? But his presence would be multiplied worldwide through the indwelling and empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers as they, as they carried the good news of salvation in Christ to the ends of the earth. So it was going to go all over the place. Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in what? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the, to the uttermost part of the earth. And so Jesus went on here in verses 8 through 15 to explain the specific ways that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives as the church that they were about to become, right, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. So he says, let me, let me tell you how the, the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life as the church and also how he's going to work in the lives of those that you'll be sharing the gospel with throughout the world. This is what you're to look for, this is what you are to look forward to. And so we have two ministries here of the Holy Spirit. The first ministry is to unbelievers, and, and as, 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 it go, as, it, as it relates to unbelievers, he is the reprover, verses 8 through 11, in that he produces conviction in the world. And then his ministry to believers is he's the revealer, verses 12 through 15, in that he provides comprehension in the church. He provides comprehension in the church. So let's look at these two ministries this morning. Number one, his ministry to unbelievers. The Holy Spirit is the reprover who produces conviction in the world. Notice verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That word convict simply means that he will show them their sin and summon them to repent. He will convict them of their sin and summon them to repent. So the Holy Spirit convinces unbelievers 
that they stand guilty as sinners before a holy God and that they're destined to be punished for their rebellion against Him and that the only way they can be delivered from death and hell is to place their faith alone in the substitutionary sacrifice of His righteous Son, Jesus Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever. Merrill Tenney, the great commentator, said this, the Spirit does not merely accuse men of sin. He brings to them an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and helplessness before God. The Spirit is the prosecuting attorney who presents God's case against humanity. It's a great analogy there. And so after introducing this kind of general statement here in verse 8 that when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, he goes on to explain in more detail these three things that the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin, what I mean by that is because they do not believe in me. So the essence of sin is unbelief. Not believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Savior from sin. Listen, what ultimately damns a person to hell is not because they smoke and they drink and they carouse around and all that kind of stuff. It's that they don't believe the gospel. They're unwilling to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and embrace him by faith as their Lord and Savior. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. In John chapter 8, Verse 24, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so the Spirit of God convinces people to believe in Jesus. Verse 10, he goes on and describes righteousness and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What he's talking about there is the, the, the perfect righteousness that's required to go to heaven, that the Spirit of God convicts unbelievers that, that it takes a perfect person to get to heaven. That God is a holy God and his standard to spend eternity forever in his presence is to be perfectly holy as he is holy. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20, I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the people who heard that in their day said, well, I'm not going to heaven then because, man, the Pharisees are the pinnacle of righteousness. I don't even come close to their righteousness. And then... To take it one step further, Jesus concluded this discussion in Matthew 5, 48. He said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, that rules me out. That rules all of us out. And so the Spirit convicts people of how far they fall short of God's standard of perfection and convinces them that there's nothing that they can do to make themselves righteous or right with God. They, they could never be good enough to get to heaven on their own. And because they lack righteousness in and of themselves, they need to find it somewhere else. Or more precisely, in someone else. And that someone is Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life 
that all of us should have lived and died the awful death that all of us should have died. And the fact that God raised him from the dead proved that he accepted his righteous life and sacrificial death as payment for those who were unrighteous. And what's more, the fact that that Jesus ascended back to heaven to assume his place at the right hand of God proved that he was perfectly righteous just like God. That's why he says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Only righteous people, perfectly righteous people go to heaven and guess what? I'm going there. So that's confirmation that I am the perfect righteous sacrifice that was sent by God to save from sin. And so now he serves, Christ serves as the mediator between us and God who took our unrighteousness upon himself on the cross and offers to clothe us with his righteousness so we can stand before God. Peter said this in his uh, one of his, uh, his second sermon after Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, verse 14, he was confronting the Jews for murdering the Messiah, their Messiah. He said, but you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but, to put, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're witnesses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then Paul said this in Philippians 3.9, he's sharing his testimony about how he was to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law. In other words, from keeping the law, from obeying the commands of Scripture, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And listen, Paul had done a lot of good things in his life. He was a very righteous man from a human, on a human level or from a human perspective. Didn't get any more righteous right, than, than Paul. The righteous indignation of, of killing Christians, as we learned last week, and, and thinking he was serving God. And yet he realized, you know what, all my righteousness is as filthy rags. It's all like a pile of poop. Dung, he called it. And that's why I now have the righteousness that that I was given by Christ. Listen, beloved, God isn't looking for perfect people to inhabit heaven. He's looking for imperfect people who are willing to admit that they lack the righteousness needed to get there and are willing to depend on the righteousness that he's provided for us in Christ. And so the Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Notice verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Obviously, the ruler of the world is who? Satan. We, we already have seen him called that in chapter 14, uh, verse 30. And so the ruler of the world is Satan. And while he considered the cross a great victory for him, it was actually his defeat. And through Christ's death and resurrection, he conquered death and hell and triumphed over Satan and sealed his judgment. And after his final rebellion at the end of the millennium, Revelation 20 verse 10 says that Satan will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire where he will be separated from God's glory for all eternity. But as one commentator says, in the meantime... Satan goes about as the god of this age, seeking to capture and devour souls. The sobering warning to those who embrace the world system is that since its ruler will not escape judgment, neither will they unless they repent, the devil's fate guarantees the judgment of every unrepentant sinner. 
In other words, Satan is a defeated foe whose judgment is assured, and all who follow him in rebellion against God and Christ are sure to share the same fate as Satan. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, they will say, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Unbelievers will be cast into that eternal fire with Satan and and the demons. Now just think for a moment, what is, what we're learning about here, the convicting ministry, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of unbelievers, what would you, where would you turn in Scripture to find the clearest manifestation of this convicting work of the Spirit that Jesus was referring to here in the upper room? When did the Spirit come? On the day of Pentecost, right? Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I believe, is the clearest manifestation of what Jesus was talking about because here's Peter preaching his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes, fills the upper room, empowers them, and they begin speaking in in all sorts of different languages. It wasn't just gibberish, saying stuff. Okay, it was, it was actual known languages that they were communicating the gospel to all the different people that were there in Jerusalem for the, for the, for the, for the festival and the, the feast. And, and so they were able to hear the gospel in their own language. And so, again, when they were accused of being drunk, uh, Peter got up and said, no, no, we're not drunk, okay? We're filled with the spirit that was promised to us by Jesus, who you killed. And he preaches this amazing sermon about how they had missed the Messiah, and uh, notice what it says in in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, well, look at verse 36, this was kind of his concluding line, sentence of his sermon, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You just killed your Messiah. And notice the response. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We just burned our only bridge to heaven. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Wow. That's quite a... Quite a, a, a harvest, right, for your first sermon. And, and, and I would say this, that if Peter had preached that same exact sermon the day before, no one would have responded. Because it wasn't about Peter's eloquence, his passion, uh, his, his, his winsomeness, had nothing to do with it. It was all the work of the Spirit, the convicting work of the Spirit, and just cut them to the heart. And so we see the Spirit of God working um, in the life of Peter, right? Emboldening him to preach the Word, but we also see the convicting work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in convicting those who were listening to that sermon. 
Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, it's our job to witness. It's the Spirit's job to convict. Perhaps some of us need to quit acting like prosecuting attorneys or judges so that the Spirit can use us as faithful witnesses. I was guilty of that as a young man, passionate for Christ, wanting everyone to know Christ, and, and, and I would just corner my friends on, uh, in high school, uh, either in the quad or in the, against their locker or on the phone, right, uh, in the locker room, uh, and just really kind of pressing the issue and kind of being a prosecuting attorney, and I'm going to convince you that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus, and I realize, you know what, it's not my job to convict, convince them of anything. I just need to be a faithful witness. And, let, and let, let, leave them to the Holy Spirit to convict. And so here we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. And that is he is the reprover or the convictor. He, he, provide, uh, he, he produces conviction in the world. Now let's look secondly at the Holy Spirit's ministry to believers. And, and, in that he's the revealer who provides comprehension in the church. Look at verse 12, back in John chapter 16. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There was a whole lot more that Jesus wanted to, 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 to his disciples to know, but not only were they already suffering from information overload at this point, can you imagine dealing with all this information that he was giving them in the upper room? But also at this point, they wouldn't have been able to understand the significance of the crucifixion and resurrection before it happened. So he was limited in what he could share with them because they just wouldn't get it. In fact, they, they, they didn't even get it until after it happened or even after it happened. Um, just a couple places we see this dynamic in John chapter 2. Verse 15, when Jesus was cleansing the temple the first time. Jesus said to destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and it will raise it up and you, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So again, these things were understood after the fact. Uh, in John chapter 12, John 12, chapter 12, verse uh, 12 through 16, uh, he's talking about... Um, Jesus entering Jerusalem and uh, everyone putting down the palm branches on Palm Sunday and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who, come, who comes in the name of the Lord and the young donkey. He's riding on this young donkey and, and uh, they, 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 at the time they didn't even realize that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 16, these things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, when he was crucified, buried and resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And I think it's interesting, even after his resurrection, it took a, took a little while for this stuff to sink in. In John chapter 20, Peter and John ran to the tomb. And when they went inside and saw, it says they believed, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So even after he rose from the dead, they were still kind of clueless about what was going on. And it was slowly beginning to come to light. They were slowly, slowly being able to comprehend it. Well, guess what? That's the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us comprehend. Notice verse 13. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whoever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. By the way, this is the third time Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. Chapter 14, verse 17, the spirit of truth. Uh, chapter 15, verse 26, the Spirit of truth. So he calls him the helper, right? That's what we know the Holy Spirit to be the most. That's, that's the title we like the most, the helper. But another title for the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And in his high, high priestly prayer here in, in the next chapter, John 17, 17, he equates the truth to what? Sanctify, he prays, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so the spirit of truth, right, means he's the spirit of what? The word. What is the, the armor of God? Ephesians chapter 6, the, the, the sword of the spirit, right? And so you could say that he's the spirit of the Bible, the spirit of truth. And, and we need to make sure we understand that there's a direct connection between the spirit of God and the word of God. It's interesting, and we won't take the time to look, but you can do this um, on your own. If you compare Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. And then it lists what that will look like, speaking to one another in tongues and seeing glory clouds and angel feathers. Is that what it says? No. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, interesting. Okay, I'm doing it anyway. Even though we don't have time, we're doing it because it's important. I want you to see this connection. Colossians 3.16. Interesting. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So he's saying in Ephesians 5, let the spirit dwell within you. And here in Colossians 3, he's saying, let the word dwell within you. And notice the fruit of the word dwelling within you is exactly the same as the fruit of the Spirit dwelling within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in order to do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then goes off into talking about submission of wives to husbands. Interesting. Same exact fruit. Being filled with the Spirit is synonymous with being filled with the Word of God. If you ever wonder, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Am I, am I supposed to kind of wait around and get zapped or, you know, zoop, he kind of fills us up? What, what is that? Be the filling of the Holy Spirit. It, well, it's, it's literally being filled with the Word of God. Same thing. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who is responsible for both the inspiration of the Scriptures and the illumination of Scripture. Everything related to the Word of God uh, has to do with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God guided and superintended the, the apostles as they wrote down the words and the works of Christ in the Gospels. 
and the principles by which the followers of Christ were to live in the epistles and the details surrounding the return of Christ in the book of Revelation. That's what Jesus meant, I think, when he said he will guide you into all truth and he will disclose to you what is to come. And so the New Testament itself, what we have here in in, in Matthew through Revelation is the ultimate manifestation of the Spirit's work of Revelation. I think at the same time, what Jesus was saying to his disciples here about guiding them into all truth is that the Spirit would work in their minds and hearts so that they could fully comprehend all that Jesus had said and done during his first coming and all that he would occur at his second coming. And I think this is the same revealing work of the Spirit that is made manifest to us today, not giving us new revelation, but helping us to grasp or comprehend the truth he's already revealed in his word. It's a very important distinction. That we shouldn't be expecting the Spirit to reveal any new truth. Well, then, if that's true, then you might as well get your pen out and start writing some stuff, you know, at the book, at the, in the white pages after Revelation. By the way, if you do that, expect to have all the curses of the Bible come upon you, because that's what the book of Revelation says. Anybody who adds or takes away from this book, right, all the curses of this book will be upon them. So not a good idea. And so... I think what's referenced here, Jesus is referencing not only the, the, the work of inspiration, right, the, the work of revelation, but also the work of illumination. And without the illuminating work of the Spirit, it is impossible to understand the Bible. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Starting in verse 11, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Only the spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, but a natural man... In other words, somebody, an unsaved person who doesn't have the Spirit of God does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. That's why it always scares me when someone says, you know what, I read the Bible and I don't get anything out of it. I don't understand anything I read. Well, you know, there are some places in the Scriptures that are hard to understand. Even Peter admitted that, hey, some of Paul's writings are kind of difficult to understand. That's comforting to me. Even Peter was struggling, Right? But if you read the scriptures, and, 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 and I mean, it's just like reading gibberish to you. It makes absolutely no sense, and it actually sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Then that's a good indication that you don't have the Spirit of God in you, and you're not a Christian. Because if you did have the Spirit of God, right, you would be able to understand the scriptures. In a later letter that John wrote, that John wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John along with the book of Revelation. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, listen to what he said. He said, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. He goes on, As for you, verse 27, the anointing which you receive from Him 
abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Who abides in us? The Holy Spirit, right? He's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And what is the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Because that's a, a, a phrase, a term that's ripped out of context here and, and apply, misapplied to all sorts of, of wacky things, right? That people claim to be manifestations of the Spirit, but they have absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible says. Benny Hinn is the classic example. He talks about the anointing that's on his life, and, and, and he'll come up, people will come up, and he'll, he'll knock people over on the stage, and he'll take his coat off, and he'll wave it out into the crowd, and the whole section will just fall over in their chairs. And he'll say, the anointing is strong tonight. And he's claiming that that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the anointing of the Holy Spirit that John was talking about. The, the anointing of the Spirit is the ability to understand the Scriptures, It's the illuminating work of the Spirit. And so the main way that the Holy Spirit actively uh, anoints us, if you will, or ministers to us as believers today is by helping us and understand to understand and apply the truth of Scripture. If, if anyone has an anointing, it's the, it's the preacher, right, uh, who, who gets up and, and, and explains the Word of God accurately and clearly and practically. That's the guy who has the anointing of the Spirit. God's using him, right, to, to help people understand the, the Word of God. And then look at verse 14, just wrapping this up here back in John 16. He says, he will glorify me. Jesus says, he will glorify, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You know what the number one goal of the Holy Spirit is? To glorify Jesus Christ. The passion of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. In the same way the Son's passion was to glorify who? The Father. So the Spirit's passion is to glorify the Son. And so you see here the Trinity here in all of its glory, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, not just one in essence, but one in purpose. I think it's... A fair statement to say this, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to decrease so that Christ may increase. Doesn't mean we minimize the Holy Spirit. I think that's unfortunate that I think some churches do that. We minimize the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't sing about the Holy Spirit. uh, Because listen, the Holy Spirit is one of the members of the Trinity and deserves as much glory as the other two, right? We understand that. But in the same way that the Son submits to the Father, assumes a submissive role to the Father, I think in many ways the Spirit assumes a submissive role to the Son. And they seek to serve the other. And again, these are roles that they serve. It doesn't affect their essence at all. They're all equally God, equally God, all equally worthy of glory. But they defer to one another. They serve one another. They submit to one another. All that to say, the Holy Spirit would never allow a church to be all about Him. 
because he wants the church to be all about Jesus. And so the overemphasis on the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit in, in so many charismatic Pentecostal churches today is completely contrary to what Jesus said in verse 14, that he will glorify me, not himself. And so any church or ministry that focuses more on the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit than the person and work of Jesus Christ is not a Spirit-filled church or ministry. And if it's not the Spirit filling them, then who is filling them? That's the scary part. I think a simple test of whether a man or a message or a ministry is truly Spirit-led and Spirit-filled is if it is centered on who Christ is and it's connected to what the Bible says. It's centered on who Christ is, and it's connected to what the Bible says. The work of the Spirit of God will never be divorced from the Son of God or the Word of God. Listen, don't ever believe anyone who claims that they or you are experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit if what they're saying or doing or what you're, what's happening to you contradicts the example of Christ or the teaching of God's word. Don't believe it. Again, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, not error. And so whenever and wherever the spirit is at work, whatever happens will line up with the truth of God's word. And so the Holy Spirit has a dual ministry to both the church and the world, to both believers and unbelievers. So how cool is that this morning? Because if you are a believer, then you have been experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit right now. You've been experiencing it as he's been illuminating you and guiding you and understanding and applying what Jesus was saying in this passage and what, what the rest of the scriptures that we've been reading, how they, what they mean and how they apply. You've been experiencing, right, the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you have also been experiencing the work of the Spirit as he's been convincing you that what you've been listening to is true, and he's been convicting you of your sin and that you'll be punished for your sin in hell if you don't receive the righteousness that Jesus offers all those who will stop trusting in their own goodness to get them to heaven and simply trust in his work on the cross in their place. And so I want to appeal to you, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way that you can be made right with God and commit the rest of your life to follow and obey him as your savior and as your Lord. And whatever you do, don't resist or reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit because that is the one and only sin that God will not forgive. It's what we know as the unpardonable sin. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. 
Many think that the blasphemy of the, uh, of the Spirit is, is saying something dishonorable about Christ or, or disrespectful to Christ. Uh, I had someone come to me one time and say, man, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I, I, told, I was mad one time and I told God I hated him. And I assured them that, hey, listen, that was a bad thing to do. And oh, I'm glad you realized that. But that's not the unpardonable sin. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is being exposed to the presence and the power of Jesus Christ, but rejecting the Holy Spirit's convicting work that you need to repent and believe in him. That's what the context of that passage is. The Pharisees were attributing God's power, Christ's power and miracles to demons. That was blasphemous. They were rejecting him. And if you reject Christ, who died to pay the penalty for your sin, then there is no other way for you to be forgiven for your sin. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. And you have no other choice but to pay the penalty for your sin yourself and to die in your sin. Don't quench the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, And definitely don't blaspheme the Spirit by rejecting His work in your life this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word and how it just keeps us anchored so we don't go flying all over the place following some of the the examples that are out there today. While we haven't heard any laughing or barking or seen anybody acting drunk or feathers falling or glory clouds appearing, we thank you that we have experienced your spirit this morning in this place as we've sung Christ-centered songs and and listened to to a Bible-based message. Lord, help us to be content with these manifestations of the spirit and not seek any greater manifestations in in things that we, we never see in your word or your word never said would happen. And Lord, we pray for those who are deceiving and being deceived, that the Spirit would direct them back to the truth of your word so that you would be truly honored, truly glorified in their lives and in their churches. And Lord, we pray that for our church. Lord, we're not a perfect church. There's there's things that we're not doing well that we need to do better in. So we don't want to put ourselves up as if we're the only church that's doing it right because we're not. Thank you for so many other faithful churches out there this morning who are preaching your word and and, and reaching the lost and discipling uh, souls. And we're just so grateful to be a part of that great group and just pray that you would continue to help us to walk in humility, Father, and use us to direct people to the truth of your word about the truth of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.